He may seem like a mild-mannered engineer until you install an HVAC system improperly. Then the whole turning green Hulk shirt-ripping thing happens, and it's not pretty. Here's Bill Spohn. Welcome back to another episode of the Building HVAC Science Podcast. It's our goal to help create better, more knowledgeable HVAC and building performance technicians by helping the two professions to better understand each other with the ultimate goal of making customers happy in the homes they live in and the buildings they work in. HVAC. It's loaded with a lot of slight to major misconceptions, maybe even borderline myths. My three esteemed guests, or three amigos, on the podcast today will shed some light on common misconceptions in the HVACR industry. We'll talk about such fun topics like heat pumps are only for the south of the Mason-Dixon line. A2L refrigerants are flammable. R32 is replacement for R410, right? Reclaim refrigerant does not have any value. Sear 2 it's taken us by surprise. Equipment brand names determine pretty much exclusively the quality, performance, and longevity of the service. That's a big word to pronounce right there, longevity. But these guys are so eloquent. Uh, we also did this as a video podcast, so it'll also be on the True Tech YouTube channel if you'd like to tune in and see the facial expressions and probably a little bit more of a raw cut of this episode. In any case, let's move ahead and listen to Clifton, Jason, and Eugene from ESCO Group talk about myth-busting in HVACR. I have three guests on the show today, and this is going to be a joint video audio. If you're listening on the audio, you want to go take a look at the video, it'll be on the True Tech YouTube channel. If you want to see the reaction on these gentlemen's faces, <laughs> I do call them gentlemen with a little tongue in my cheek. We have Clifton Beck, Eugene Silverstein, and Jason Abjut. How did I do, Jason? Yeah, really good. Okay, thank you. Better than my first attempt. <laughs> so these gentlemen all work for ESCO, and I'm going to first ask Clifton to give his background, but also talk just a little bit about ESCO since he's the newest one with ESCO. Thank you so much, Bill. Yeah, glad to be here. I started my career, I married into a, a HVAC business. So I started really early in life and realized it was a good income. And so I was the little guy. I was the crawl space and attic guy. And I loved controls and technology. So I real quickly got into service and got into new controls, got into refrigeration, got into commercial industrial refrigeration, got into building automations, Went back to school, grabbed a master electrician license, got into designing and controlling automation controls and thought that that's where I would just stay because that was a really lucrative place to be. And I got recruited into training about six years ago by just a wonderful gentleman that called and said, I think you missed the bar. <laughs> so then I got into distributor training and I got into distributor training because of the changes that were happening in the residential equipment. So all of the things that I was a customary to in the commercial industrial side was happening in the residential. So it was a great opportunity to be able to take what I knew and just implement it into a different style of equipment and reach a broader scope. And I have been working with ESCO the entire time. So yeah, my entire educational side has been hand in hand working with Renee and Howard and just spent a lot of time knowing what ESCO was doing. So we've had a lot of conversations in the last few years. So as the SEER 2 changes and as the A2L changes were happening, we'd had some good conversations. And I thought, man, what a wonderful opportunity to 
be on the front side of the kind of changes that I seen when I first got into the industry, because I was in that CFC phase out and where like we've talked so many times where we had a lot of refrigerants on our van and we got to see that side. So it's just filling in another blank in the industry, doing what I can do to bring my experiences and help educate some of our younger generations and share some of the things that I've learned about training along the way and just be a part of a great, big, beautiful painting that's being painted about our industry right now. And I think ESCO is right at the heart of that. And ESCO is, for the listeners who don't know? ESCO Institute and HVAC Excellence is the leading educational organization in our industry. A lot of people don't realize when you go to post-secondary and trade schools that that is the curriculum, a lot of the curriculum that you're working with. And so as we continue these conversations with like Eugene and Jason, we're now talking to the authors of a lot of the books that are being used in our publications. So I bring the technician side and just help add that little extra character for the new equipment that's changing. And then HVAC Excellence is, of course, the body of ESCO that is looking at a third-party evaluation of the curriculum and the design of the HVAC programs in our post-secondary and vocational and high school, and hopefully start growing down lower as our industry starts promoting the trades in younger ages. And your role now is in education for ESCO, your new role? My role is manager of digital media. So it is a lot of organizing and building our media collection. I think we're up to about 22,000 components in my media inventory right now of things that ESCO has built throughout the years. And so we're re-archiving that So we have easy utilization of that for all of our content creators, because we have a lot of internal content creators like Eugene and Jason and myself, and we have other members that build other curriculum. So trying to streamline where our content is at so that we can help build content faster as we see a lot of big changes coming to our industry in these next couple of years. That is my current role. And like you and like everyone in the industry, you you are where you are at the moment (laughs) because it changes so fluidly. And you're based out of Indiana, is that correct? Yeah, I'm just outside of Indianapolis. All right, moving on to Eugene. Give us some background. Ah, I will. Yeah, actually, Clifton said he married into HVAC, and I was born into HVAC. (laughs) My father was an HVAC guy from way back when. I started in the industry, wow, in 1980. So we're closing in on 43 years in this industry. And yeah, I worked with family-owned businesses. We had the opportunity to own and run three service companies, primarily Midtown Manhattan. We did a lot of the high-rise equipment. And as years go by, family issues and say, you know what? I don't think I should be working for a family anymore. So I actually answered an ad with, we actually, as an ad, it was actually in a newspaper. I don't know if a lot of people are aware that there were actually newspapers at one point. And I actually answered an ad for a service technician. And I answered, the ad showed up for the interview, and it was at a trade school in New York City. And I walked in, and I said, I think I'm in the wrong place. Why would a trade school be looking for a technician? And in actuality, they weren't. They were looking for teachers. And I was a little upset with the director when we were sitting down at the table. And he was like, well, if I put an ad out for teachers, would you have answered it? And I said, absolutely not. Because I'm somebody who, at that time, hated everything about the educational process. I hated school, hated books, hated reading, hated writing, hated everything about education. And the director of the school convinced me to join his staff. 
and help me get my state teaching license. And then before you knew it, I realized I could actually teach. And the textbook we were using at the time was riddled with technical errors. And you might have heard it. it was Cengage Learning's Refrigeration and Air Conditioning Technology. And shortly after I started teaching, I became the chairman of the refrigeration department. And the first thing I did was pull the book out of the school. That drew attention, right? I got contacted by the publisher and we met and we hit it off. And they said, well, what would it take to get the book back in the school? I said, well, when the book goes to its next edition, I want to review it. To make a long story just a little bit longer, I'm now the co-author of that book. Presently in its ninth edition, where Jason and I are working on the 10th edition right now. And yeah, I've been on that book, actively working on it, either behind the scenes or on the front cover since the fourth edition. So interesting, but a New Yorker moving out to California. And I didn't have any job prospects. I didn't know what I was going to do when I got to California. I said, oh, I'm going to get to California. And when I get settled, I'm going to go to schools who use my book and show up and say, here I am, hire me. And then I got a call from Jerry Weiss, our CEO. And he was like, oh, a little birdie told me that you were planning to move out to California. What are your plans for work? I'm like, I don't have any. So I told him my plan about showing up at schools and having them roll out the red carpet. And he's like, you wrote direct and taught your own program out at a college in New York. You realize how hard it is to get a line open for teaching. And we were chatting and he's like, oh, we have this thing called Title 24 that we're working on. And we don't have boots on the ground in California. We struck and we spoke 15, 20 minutes. And he offered me a position with ESCO right then and there. And before I even moved to California, I had a job, which was actually kind of neat. And then just like Clifton and joining the ESCO team, I didn't realize how involved we were. So the ESCO group is really our mothership. I mean, we have the document registry now with Title 24. For those of you out there who have 410A certification, that's through the Air Conditioning Refrigeration Safety Coalition. That's us. The Green Mechanical Council is us. HVAC Excellence is us. So there are a bunch of other organizations that fall under the ESCO group umbrella. So I started with ESCO in September of 2015. It's been a really, really awesome experience getting to work with so many schools, so many teachers, so many industry professionals. We certify technicians. We're the largest issuer of EPA certifications in the country. So we certify technicians. We credential instructors. We have credit programs. It's a different task every day. We're doing something different all the time. Two million certifications. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Eugene. Jason, if Clifton was married into it and Eugene was born into it, you were either adopted or abducted into it? Please. <laughs> I would say adopted. Yes. Okay. I was working in a job on a dock and we got laid off and I went to a trade school for HVAC and I graduated and got a job. And the guy that taught me was really, really good teacher. And he got sick a year or so later and had to take a bunch of time off. And the school reached out to me to ask me if I could come back and teach nights while working during the day. And eventually he passed away and they asked me to be the full-time instructor. I worked my way all the way up to director of education there in Chicago at the school. I was there for 15 years teaching while running a contracting business as well. I keep my thumb on the pulse of the industry, so to speak. And like Eugene, I got a phone call from Mr. Weiss saying, hey, we've seen some of the things you're doing. We've seen some of the things that you're writing. We'd like to get you on board, get you out of the teaching day class, night class, all these days a week and 
start reaching out to more and more schools. Up until that point, it was just my classroom, my students, and I, the education, HVAC education industry outside of that, I was very unfamiliar with. And when I came on board ESCO, I was able to get into more classrooms and talk to other instructors. And I would go to the conference and see the big reach that they had. And I'm like, yes, this is for me. I'm going to do this. And then I was approached by Cengage and Mr. Silverstein here to help out on some titles, certain titles. And I kind of fell into that. I don't know if you want to say abducted or adopted, but I think I tripped into that one. I fell into that one. Fell into it. Okay. Yeah. We'll, like, we'll accept that. So. Thank you for that wonderful background that sort of sets the stage. Some things are talked about here is it's an exciting time. There's rapid changes. These gentlemen bring together so many different resources from their experience, but also know how to access resources and are such a reliable source of information. And along with information goes sometimes misinformation. So we want to make the topic of this podcast is myth busting some potential myths we could bust, things that you might have heard, things you might even believe or just are questioning about. So I'm just going to throw one of the myths out there, and then whoever wants to speak up first, get into it, and then I'm sure all three of you will, will add to it. So I'm gonna, the first one is heat pumps are just installed south of the Mason-Dixon line. They will not work in the north. Can I hop in on that one? Sure. As a northerner. In the 80s, the majority of heat pumps had two speeds, on and off. And if a heat pump system is not properly sized, properly installed, properly charged, the system might work in the cooling mode, but it might have difficulty in the heating mode. And I always give this example because I grew up on Long Island in New York, and in the summer, we're designing systems for a 75-degree indoor temperature. On Long Island, we designed systems for 85-degree outdoor ambient temperatures. So a heat pump system operating in the cooling mode is pushing against 10 degrees. So if the system is not properly sized, if it's not properly installed, if it's not properly charged, it'll work a little harder, but it'll still cool the space. Flip over to the winter. So now we're designing for a 70-degree indoor air temp, and we were designing for a 15-degree outdoor ambient temp. So now we're looking at a 55-degree delta T between indoor and outdoor. So any deficiencies, if the system is not sized right, if the ductwork is insufficient, if it's not installed, if the system's not charged right, any deficiency that might be overcome by increased system operation time, now the system's having a harder time. What a great way of putting it. I mean, that really drives home the point. Bigger delta Ts exacerbate difficulties or deficiencies. Wonderful. What happens is being an educator, you're kind of trying to explain things to people in words of one syllable the way they'll understand it. So even when we're talking to the public, I've done a lot of seminars on heat pumps and a lot of the attendees of the sessions that I was conducting were homeowners. And one of the major problems that homeowners had was they were complaining about their electric bills going up. And the contractors, because they didn't want the service calls, the nuisance calls with a heat pump, they were wiring up second stage heat with first stage heat. So now when the heat pump turns on, you're running the compressor, but you're also running the electric heat. So the electric meters are spinning 3,000 miles a second. So the mindset of heat pumps in the North was they don't work and they cost too much to operate. 
And unfortunately, it really points back to if the system's properly installed, if it's properly sized, charged, they will work. And another problem is this improper or inadequate customer education. The customers that are getting these systems installed, again, coming from New York, a lot of people, they lived in big houses and they had fossil fuel heating systems, they had oil, they had gas, and they're expecting that blast of scorching hot air coming out the supply register. Heat pumps, not so much. And when heat pumps go into the frost, right, we're tempering that air. So customers will call up complaining that the heat pump is in heating, but it's blowing cold air, even though it's working correctly. So there is a big misconception that heat pumps are only for the South. But especially now with inverted technologies, we're able to ramp compressor speeds up. When we ramp the compressor speeds up, the suction pressure, the low side pressure and evaporate temperature goes down, making it easier to absorb heat from outside. And at the same time, the head pressure goes up, making the condenser temperature hotter. So we're able to effectively absorb heat into the heat pump system, even at lower temperatures. So yeah, heat pumps have come a long way since the 70s and 80s, the single speed on and off. But yeah, it's definitely a misconception. We have people in even northern New York, in Maine, putting in heat pump systems, and they're able to provide heat. Yeah, I lived a couple of years here in our house with a two-ton air source heat pump. I purposely switched off the resistance. It's disconnected. And we survived through minus one degree nights, things like that. We do have a really well-insulated house and a pretty good thermal mass to pull off of, but I'm always looking at the thermostat and seeing it's off by like one degree. That's about it. And it's slowly bringing it back up with those lower speeds of the compressor with the inverter technology. I'll let someone else give some nuance to this, Jason or Clifton. I was just going to echo Eugene's point that some of this has to do with educating the customer's expectations. They're expecting 120, 130 degree air coming out of that that vent. You're just not going to get that with a heat pump. And the other thing that Eugene brought up was the delta T between the indoor and outdoor. As you move into the northern climates, we have a lot larger delta T than you do in the... Does that mean they won't work? No, they will work. But as you mentioned in your house, using the heat pump, a lot of houses in the north aren't as tight as they should be. They're quite drafty. Again, designed that way because we're burning fossil fuels in this home and we want fresh air to come in to replace for combustion air. So when you're working in the northern part of the country and you have these colder climates and you want to go heat pump, one of the other things that you want to look at aside of sizing it right, installing it right, is look at the structure itself. Is it conducive to a heat pump? You might do everything perfect, perfect install, perfect sizing, everything, but we have leaky duct work or we have a drafty home and it just can't keep up. So we have that little bit of extra added step to look at the structure itself and see, will a heat pump do okay here? That's something that's a little different than we have in the South. One of the things that gets overlooked so much when we talk about the changes in design is the calculations for COP. The coefficient of performance that we had in equipment that was R22 10-seer equipment, we didn't produce the type of heat that we do now. So now we have units that are at 47, at design temperature, we're producing COPs that are higher than ground source heat pumps. And of course, they're all going to diminish as we go lower. But when we look at some of the earlier heat pumps, even our early inverter heat pumps, some of those were actually having cutoff temperatures at plus five degrees Fahrenheit. So they were actually shutting off at five degrees, going 100% resistance. 
And so we have different layers. So helping people understand that that COP has changed and those cutout temperatures have changed so drastically with the changes, like Eugene said, with a variable refrigerant control where we can change our suction and our discharge pressures. We really have three types of heat pumps. When we look at COP design, we have some that shut off at positive five. We have some that shut off at minus five and we have some that shut off at minus 15 or lower. So we can now produce heat pumps that like I have a low ambient heat pump here that has got a 100% capacity at minus five. Pretty significant. It's about 40% at minus 15. So when we're looking at heat pumps, understanding that not all heat pumps are the same is the biggest factor because they don't fall into a characteristic. At one time, we had different manufacturers producing a heat pump that had one refrigerant and had one speed of compressor and it had one metering device, and you got the same kind of performance across the line. Now we have multiple designs, and yeah, the prices are going to increase as we go to lower temperature capabilities, but it's because the engineering has increased so much. So you can be looking at a piece of equipment that produces zero heat at minus five, or you can look up the line and have one that's producing 100% heat and still producing COPs well above one. So much higher than using electric resistive heat of one to one COP. So that coefficient of performance is probably the most misunderstood thing when we're talking about heat pumps and utilizing them in different areas. Excellent. So you guys work for an educational organization. Is there a place if someone wanted to do more than just listen to this excellent podcast or watch this video to learn more about this. What are your recommendations? Let's give some hints of where people can pick up the thread and move ahead with us. We happen to have online with us here today, the author of a very awesome heat pump book, Mr. Eugene Silverstein here, writes a book on heat pumps. It is published by Sungage, carried by ESCO as well. We also have some online interactive heat pump software on our e-learning network, the HVAC Learning Network. That was recently released. It's a bunch of modules, a basic heat pump, introduction to heat pumps. If you want to take it a step further, a lot of the information in that interactive program came right from Eugene's book. It's phenomenal. I'll tell you, if you're really looking to dig in, dig into Eugene's book. We also have, again, if you're looking for the basics, we have another heat pump book at ESCO written by Randy and the team. Again, that'll give you a taste of it. So we do have some resources at ESCO. We have two titles that we carry. One is an ESCO title. One is a Sungage. And we also have an interactive intro to heat pumps as well. Fantastic. And not to give a shameless plug, but every year we run an education conference. And a lot of people think that our conference is only for teachers. So we did change it. We now call it the HVAC Excellence National Education Conference because we found that a lot of people who attend the conference are not on the front line of education, but they are in search of learning. We run that conference every year. We've been running that conference since 2007. And our next conference is March 20th through the 22nd in Las Vegas, Nevada. And heat pumps, we, we have a few sessions at the conference that are geared toward heat pumps, as well as we have over 60 sessions to on a variety of topics. Yeah, a lot of them are geared toward teachers and how to deliver content. But a lot of them really appeal to contractors, technicians, people in the industry who need to learn more. And one of the neat things about the conference is that the sessions are created by industry professionals for industry professionals. Bill, you know, you've been at the conference forever. Bill exhibits at the conference. We have an exhibition hall where you can meet with the manufacturers of the equipment and tools that are out there to make your job as an industry professional easier. So shameless plug for the conference. But no, great plug. 
it's just sidebar conversations with owners of contracting companies who are there to be stimulated with ideas to change what they do when they go back. I remember one hour long conversation I had with a local contractor from Pittsburgh and he was there just eating it up and getting ideas on how to improve his business and exercising all the resources are there. So it's not a shameless plug. It's shameful if you don't go. That's what we're going to (laughs) say. Exactly. There's another resource that goes hand in hand with it. We've been working very extensively with the Department of Energy, assisting in creating modules and training materials that focuses on changes in technology. One particular is going to be our low ambient heat pump, cold climate heat pump technologies. And the Department of Energy will actually be a guest speaker at the conference. And starting in January, they're going to be a regular attendee on our Did You Know live show on Thursdays. So the Department of Energy is really reaching out to the industry to help promote education with these new technologies and how to use cold climate heat pumps more effectively. Did you know show? Give me some details. The ESCO, did you know show? (laughs) Do you know anything about that? Know a little bit about that. So just another avenue of us working with our industry to help get education out as fast as we can. So every Thursday we have at 4.30 Eastern, we do a multi-stream live show. So we're on our HVAC Excellence LinkedIn. We're on ESCO Institute, Facebook, YouTube, and then we're bringing in our industry professionals. So each week we grab a different industry professional, many of which are presenters at the conference and to talk about things that are changing in our industry and just bring multiple levels of education of our industry, not just the technical side, but why things are changing. When you spend time with Jason going over refrigerants, go, wow, why is this changing? There are many reasons that it's changing. So we've been trying to bring in different professionals from different aspects of the industry. Very good. So let's pick another myth to bust here. A1 refrigerants are (laughs) non-flammable. Jason? I can't comment on this one enough. I was doing a presentation at AHR. There was a lot of folks in the room. There were some contractors, technicians, people from all over our industry, sales, counter, just you name it. And one of the ideas that kept being thrown out there or myths, if you will, that kept being, because I was talking about A2L refrigerants, is that why are we switching from non-flammable refrigerants to flammable? And I had to stop and correct them and say, they're not non-flammable. There's no flame propagation at a certain temperature. That doesn't mean they won't burn in a house fire. Whatever's in that air conditioner is going to be a good fuel. 410A, R22, 130. 134A burns pretty good if you get some humidity in there. It's really close. 410A is just R32, which is an A2L, with some flame suppressed and R125 put in there till it got an A1 rating. So we can't throw the word non-flammable. If you put a torch to any refrigerant, it's going to burn we'll say no flame propagation. And when the refrigerants are tested, they're tested at two temperatures, 60 and 100 degrees Celsius. And then when they ignite, they look at the flame arc and the characteristics of the flame and say, okay, this is going to get an A1 or this is going to get an A2L. A1 refrigerants don't exhibit combustion at those temperatures, A2L or A3 or A2 do, but they will ignite. I mean, there's plenty of videos, plenty of things. Again, in a good house fire, your windows, which are non-flammable, will start to burn. So we got to throw that out that they're not non-flammable. It's just there's no flame propagation under a certain set of circumstances. Normal operating conditions, we'll call them. What does it take for you to know all this? What do you do in your time and slash your spare time to be able to know this? I'm the director of industry standards and relations for ESCO. So I spend a lot of time 
and committees and AHRI committees as well. I'm a member of the SRTTF, which is the Safe Refrigerant Transition Task Force. I'm the chairman of one of the committees. And we have all kinds of folks from the industry on with us, from manufacturers to labor groups to equipment, everybody's on these groups. And again, it's voluntary, their own time. And they bring all of this information to us. And a lot of this stuff is hidden. If you actually sit down and read ASHRAE Standard 34, all of that information's in there. It's just very difficult to comprehend because it was written that way on purpose (laughs) to be gray, if you will. But I read it and I decode it and I put it into, like Eugene said, one syllable words to bring out there to the folks so they understand what it means. To give you an idea, there's a refrigerant out there called ZE1234ZE. It's an HFO refrigerant. This is a little confusing and it happens a lot in Europe, but this is the only refrigerant like it in the US. As far as ASHRAE is concerned, it is an A2L. However, when DOT does their flammable testing, they do it at one temperature. And if it doesn't ignite at that temperature, it doesn't exhibit characteristics, they give it an A1 rating. So ZE is one of those refrigerants where ASHRAE, AHRI, we call it an A2L when it's in a system, but when it's in transit, it's an A1. So just to make sure people are listening, comprehend some of the acronyms you used, can you break down A1, A2, A3? Just somewhat. I know there's great graphics on it you guys have got. So So the number is the level of flammability one being the lowest and three being the highest. And there's four divisions, one, 2L, two, and three. So when you think of one, think of 410A or 134A or 404A. And when you think of three, think of propane or isobutane. These are our A3s, highly flammable. And in the middle, there's a two category that's subdivided into two and 2L, 2L being the lower. A lot of the refrigerants that we're transitioning to are 32 R454B, the new HFOs, the ones in our car, 1234YF and 1234ZE, which we're going to see in chillers, are 2Ls. The lower the GWP, as we start to bring it down, the higher the flammability starts to go, especially true with hydrocarbons. And then the letter, obviously, is toxicity, A or B. A lot of folks don't know this. (laughs) Ammonia. When you think of ammonia, you think, oh, that's toxic stuff if I breathe that in. But it's flammable as well. Ammonia is a 2L refrigerant. It's just toxic before it becomes flammable. When we start talking about these refrigerants, it's what hazard becomes acute first. And with ammonia, it's the toxicity. But it is also a 2L refrigerant. It is flammable in the right mixture. Okay, let's bring forth another one. R32 is a suitable replacement for R410A. Jason, raise his hand. <laughs> Keep on going, Jason. You got this one well. No, I was going to defer to one of the other gentlemen before I can. I mean, I can talk on this for days. As we mentioned earlier, 32 is part of 410, but it's only half of it. The pressures and temperatures are similar. However, 410A is an A1 and R32 is an A2L. R32 is SNAP approved, which means it's allowed for use in certain applications. However, those applications are for new equipment only. And this is equipment that has the safety mitigations built in to deal or mitigate any risk of ignition. These A1 systems don't have any of that stuff in it. We have a contactor, compressor, capacitor, condenser fan motor. All the electrical connections are either wire caps or the stake-ons. And there's no protection, if you will. In these newer systems, we're going to have refrigerant detection systems in most cases. We're going to have intrinsically safe electrical components. They might move some of the components around to get away from refrigerant lines and things, but R32, R454B, any of these A2Ls are only for use in new equipment designed 
to mitigate that flammability risk. We can't backwards go into A1 systems. And likewise, we're not going to go with an A1 refrigerant and A2L system. And these safety mitigation systems, can you get a little bit further into that? So think furnace. We have natural gas, which is an A3 if you want to get to it. And we bring it into our house and we set it on fire. And that's how we stay warm up here in the north. All right. We bring this highly flammable stuff in our house and we set it on fire. And why aren't we worried about that? Well, there's all of these safety switches built into the furnace to each one with a different purpose, a rollout switch, a limit switch, a pressure switch, an auxiliary limit switch. And they're all designed to detect a different safety hazard. These systems are going to have refrigerant detection, leak sensors, if you will, again, based on charge size, not all the smaller systems like window units don't require it because there's just not enough refrigerant in there to achieve combustion. Think of a rollout switch. What happens when a rollout switch opens? We shut the burners off. We go into lockout and we turn the blower motor on. Something similar to that, where if one of the sensors, one outdoor at the condenser, one indoor at the evaporator, pick up a leak, they're going to shut the system down and turn the fan on. And that air movement is going to be enough to disrupt and bring the mixture below LFL so we don't achieve ignition. In larger systems, we may see an automatic pump down where if it picks up a leak, it pumps all the refrigerant to an outdoor condenser and seals it out there and again, puts it in lockout. These sensors are designed to look like every 15 seconds for a leak. So topping off isn't going to work. (laughs) If you come up to a system that's in lockout with an E2L and you top it off, that sensor in 15 seconds is going to sniff that leak that you didn't fix and shut the system right back down again. You're going to have to fix that leak. You talked a little bit about combustion systems. Can I ask you to shamelessly plug another (laughs) publication? Which one? The All the Gas Heat book? Yes. It was developed by ESCO, the ESCO group. I was the lead author, but the entire team gave me input on it because, again, we have team members all over the country and they all experience combustion in a different ways, north, south, east, and west. It's a really good book, in my opinion, if you will, shameless book, but there is a gas heating book, 11 chapters. It covers furnaces, boilers, combustion, installation service, all kinds of stuff. And then there's an e-learning course for it on the HVAC Learning Network as well. So to satisfy more educational hunger there... Clifton or Eugene want to respond to R32 as a replacement for 410? I think Jason kind of summed it up really, really well. There was a comment brought up in the AHR session I did where the contractor asked, well, since R32 is half of 410A, can I just use half the charge? Oh, (laughs) right. Wow. Again, I had to say, well, listen, this equipment is going to be labeled. There's going to be safeties built in. Very specific. Right. You can't go back and forth with this. We're not the chemists. We're not the refrigerant manufacturers. We're not making our own blends. Blends are created in the lab by an engineer or a chemist, not in the field by technicians. That's right. And I think it's important to say that although R32 might be, air quote, new to us in Europe, it's been used for a very long time. And I have friends who live in Europe, and it's funny because I think, Clifton, you have colleagues over in Europe as well. And it's funny because they're like, oh, well, you're finally using R32. (laughs) So a lot of people in the industry think it's new, but it's something that's been around for so long. But yeah, it's good that you brought it up, Jason, about R32 being 50% of 410A. But again, at the conference, we have people from the refrigerator manufacturers. Jason's there. There are a lot of sessions and roundtable discussions where people can bring their A2L questions and get them answered. Because I think one of the problems that we're encountering, and Bill, you're bringing up these myths, it's really about 
education and it's impossible for everybody to know everything. But I think what is important is knowing where to get the information. So having the answer is great, but if you don't have the answer, but you know who to turn to, to get the answer, that's great. Because a lot of people in the industry, oh, if I don't know something, I'll just make it up. And nowadays, making things up is very, very dangerous. There's a lot of room for that too. We've mentioned a couple of times the AHR Expo, the Air Conditioning, Heating, Refrigeration Expo happens annually. This coming year is going to be in early February in Atlanta, Georgia. If you go to AHR Expo, just search for it. You'll find out admission is free. And there are many sessions that you can attend that are free of charge. In addition, you get to meet with the manufacturers. Any of this sort of tickles your fancy. That's a great place to get exposed to more. So another myth to bust here. Seer 2, where did it come from? This took us from surprise. I opened up the news and, and it's talking about Seer 2. Where'd that come from? 2016. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> what? Yes. Yeah. Clifton, it's funny because I, mean, I know Clifton has a lot to say about this, but I just went to a school to speak to the students about Seer 2. And the teacher said, well, why all of a sudden? What's up with this? And... It's really, really funny because I was like, well, Seer 2 was introduced in 2016. And I said, that would be like walking into a, an event with your seven-year-old son, hand in hand, and say, oh, here's my newborn baby. The kid's in second grade. So Seer 2's been around. Seer 2 is a second grader already. It's actually kind of funny. Where do these things get shared? Maybe somebody just missed out on the announcement. Why do you think they might have missed it? So now we're talking about Department of Energy changes, right? So Department of Energy initiated our SEER2 analysis in 2016 because the realization that we've been using SEER1, SEER which you'll hear it called sometimes, or just SEER, we established SEER ratings in 1987 with the assumption that all air conditioners ran approximately the same, depending, no matter where they were in the country. And so we kind of stuck with those standards. And then as we started realizing, especially changes in equipment, inverter technology and variable capacities, there had to be some better understandings. We had different usages, different zones. And so in 2016, we established the fundamentals for what would become CR2 ratings. And I think that we've not really concluded it, but we see that there was a misconception that CR2 education would come through the manufacturers because they were the ones making the most significant changes in the equipment. And I think as we look at an industry and realize that those are significant changes to be done and not everyone implemented those changes in 2016, 2017, they were getting towards the end of the cycle before the changes in equipment were going to happen. And that's really what we've seen. So we know that CR2 equipment is already in manufacturing and has been since midsummer in most manufacturers. And that equipment that is being sold is we're getting ready to stock up on CR2 equipment. So I think the realization is that there wasn't any formal training on CR2 changes to the contractor level. And so that often happens in our industry. So there's all these different pieces of the industry. They all have the right design. They all have the best interest of the industry. But sometimes in the process, it's not clarified who is providing the education on that. And I think that was what happened is that that path wasn't completely clear. I think it'll be a lot more clear by the manufacturers when they start releasing equipment because they're going to want technicians and contractors to understand what those changes are. But the prelude to those wasn't carried out very well. And that's why we've been, you see me out there with my bell. 
the Seer to Apocalypse is coming because unfortunately that educational, that pre-education, that prelude of education for Seer 2 didn't really happen. Now, there are some sites out there, primarily equipment distributors I've seen doing most of the Seer 2 preparation and education. So we'll start seeing more of that. We've had one manufacturer come on the show and talk about the specific changes that they will be doing. Most manufacturers have not released even to their own contractors exactly what those changes look like yet. So they're trickling through, but they're going to flow in a few months. Again, to cater to any listeners that might not be familiar, the acronym here: Seasonal Energy Efficiency Rating. So it was the process by which the rating was achieved has shifted to a different process for the manufacturers to conduct. And M1 ratings. And you'll hear a lot about M1. And that's the standard that we're using for the actual testing of equipment. So it's the standardization process. Can you speak towards how the testing has changed? Not very fluidly. Okay. It was a lot in the static pressure. It is very much static pressure. Yeah. The goal is really to better represent how the equipment is going to function when it's installed. So one of the misconceptions was it's a misconception within a misconception is that all duct systems, all air distribution systems are installed and designed perfectly. So SEER, SEER 1 was relying on Jason, what, 0.1 static? 0.1, depending on the application. Yeah. Unfortunately, residential systems that were installed, it was grab a four foot plenum, screw it on to the outlet of the air handler, and then go up into the attic with 16 boxes of flex duct and have at it. So SEER 2 is really trying to create a more accurate representation of how that system is going to perform once it's installed. So the static pressure now is about 0.5 for SEER 2. So just to give a little more accurate representation of what the system is doing. So the SEER 2 ratings are actually going to be lower than the SEER 1 ratings by about 5%. 5%. So just to get an idea, if you have a system with a C rating of 15 and you multiply that by 0.95 or 0.96, that's going to give you an approximation of what the SEER 2 number would look like to convert. Because think about it, static pressure is really the resistance to airflow in the duct system. So now if you have an inverter control blower, as the static pressure increases, that blower is going to have to work harder to overcome that static. So there's going to be more energy used per BTU per hour. So the efficiency of that system is going to drop. So the new SEER 2 numbers are going to be slightly lower than the SEER numbers. And again, there are three different regions in the country. So there's a northern region, there's a southeast and southwest, and the rules are slightly different for each of those regions. For the acceptable equipment to be installed in those regions? And Bill, it's not always installed. In some regions, it's date of manufacture. So in the north, we go by date of manufacture. So if it's manufactured before January 1, 2023, then it can be installed whenever. But in the southeast and the southwest, it's installation date. So if a piece of equipment is manufactured but cannot be installed in California, Florida, Texas, Oklahoma, anywhere, and it can't be installed by January 1, 2023, then that equipment needs to be shipped to the north 
where it can be installed whenever. So there are regional differences as far as SEER levels, SEER 2 levels, HSPF, heating season performance factors for heat pumps. So there are three distinct regions in the country, and the rules are slightly different in all three. But it's the rating of the equipment. The equipment could be the same identical equipment. It'll just have a different rating to it. Is that true? Could. But what we've seen is a pretty significant change in manufacturing of equipment. So with our one particular manufacturer, when we were looking at equipment that will be utilized, they were actually already making preparations for A2L designs that will be coming here in another (laughs) short period of time. So a lot of systems that we are comfortable with now, like single stage systems, single stage compressors, are going to be far and fewer in between. We're going to see a lot more inverter technology and multi-staged equipment in just a few weeks. But to hop on your point, so the CR2 requirements are different in, let's say, the northern region and the southern regions. So potentially there is a piece of equipment if it had a CR2 rating of 13.4 and was a split air conditioning system, you could install it in the north. But the minimum CR2 requirements in the southeast and southwest are 14.3. So you can have the same piece of equipment, and depending on where you drop it in the country, it may or may not be allowed to be installed. And because of the focus on southeast and southwest, we're going to say this is to address electrical consumption for air conditioning? Is that the motivation behind that? Yes. Yes. If you dig into CR2, you'll also find some minor things about standby losses as well with inverter boards and things that are constantly running when... Constantly utilizing wattage. Right. When the system isn't running, but the inverter boards are running. So they also, there's some stipulations in there about standby losses for heat pumps and air conditioners as well. But the big change was static pressure, the M1 testing standard. All right. Reclaim refrigerant. It's garbage. It has no value, right? <laughs> You just spouted out what a lot of technicians believe or don't know. Okay. Are we going to bust this myth? Recovered refrigerant does have a lot of value. We're in a phase down. We are in an HFC phase down. Just to point to a question, so how come nobody knows about this? The SEER 2 or the A2L transition. When it's announced, people look, their immediate focus is the date. Oh, that's in the, I'll worry about that later. I have this installed. I have to do this. I have to. I have time left. Yeah. And then all of a sudden it creeps up on you and you're like, where'd this SEER 2 thing come from? Remember the thing you read a while back? Yeah, it's here now. The common thought was that if the refrigerant is mixed, they're going to charge you to get rid of it. It's not worth anything. It's garbage. And that's just simple. The technology has evolved to where if we bring in a refrigerant, they can clean it up. They can bring it back to the standard new product standard and sell it. And with the shortage of refrigerants with a phase down, they're willing to pay for that. So that refrigerant does have value. How could someone capture that value? Where do they go if either they want to learn more or they actually have refrigerant that's been reclaimed? Sure. We actually just did an interview with Kate Horton from Hudson Technologies talking about recovery of refrigerants. And what a lot of people don't realize is that we are in this HFC phase down. It started in 2022. So a lot of people ask, well, why did our 410A prices go up this year? Because we stopped manufacturing it by 10% in 2022, all HFCs. And in 2024, we're going to add an additional 30% reduction to that. So that'll be 40% less virgin refrigerant available than what there was in 2021. So in the past, it hasn't been a push to recover refrigerant as much because the supply was available. 
And so what we're seeing is that a lot of the calculations that determined this HFC phase down were based on thinking that a significant amount of refrigerant was recovered from the field and reclaimed back into new refrigerant. And unfortunately, what's been realized in that is that that number is significantly lower than expected. So as these HFC, new virgin HFC refrigerant supplies diminish, the demand for our HFC refrigerants are going to increase. And if we don't recycle properly, and if we don't reclaim refrigerant, we're going to add to the shortage of supplies of refrigerants. So in the past where we've had refrigerant and we turned it in for exchange, it didn't have a lot of physical value because the cost of manufacturing was low. Now we're going to see a cost of manufacturing and supply being much higher, which means the supply that we provide has a significant value. So going forward, the price of reclaimed refrigerant is going to increase significantly for HFC refrigerants particularly. Those will be the ones that are really impacted the most. Kind of goes back to when we're talking about R32. A lot of people don't realize that, like Eugene said, most of the world started adapting R32 in 96, 97 when we started adapting R410A. And as we talk about HFCs, one of those misconceptions that can happen when we look at our list of refrigerants that are being phased down, we don't see R410A particularly on that EPA list. But we do see R32 and R125 because a lot of people didn't realize that R32 and 125 was 410A. So 410A is absolutely on that phase down as well as R32 and any blends that use HFC refrigerants, including some refrigerants that we're going to be seeing in this next year or two. So the supply of HFC virgin refrigerants are going to diminish by 85% over this phase down. 10% in 2022, 30% additional in 2024. And then we're going to do some additional phases over the next decade or so. So the importance of recovering and reclaiming has never been more valid than it is right now. So now we can look at our refrigerants because in the past, we didn't make it a priority because it didn't have value. You just put it in a jug and you put it in the shop and it just sat there. Now going forward, we'll actually have value on that refrigerant. And I would guess that a significant value after say like 2024. We talked a lot about refrigerants so far. That's a hot topic for myths that need to be busted. Here's another one we're going to throw in there. This is one of the ones you suggested. Equipment brands, what's on the label? That determines the quality, performance, and longevity of service. I mean, it's, there are certain brands that just perform better, right? That's definitely a big myth. I think all four of us touched on this at some point today because if we employ best practices, if we evaluate the space, Jason mentioned looking at the structure, is it compatible for a heat pump? If we're doing proper heat gain and heat loss calculations, if we're sizing the equipment correctly, if we're utilizing best practices to install the equipment, to leak check, to evacuate, to charge according to manufacturer specs, if we properly design and execute our air distribution systems, our duct systems, then once the system's put into service, there's no reason it should not function. So it really boils down to the technicians. I mean, equipment will function. Every manufacturer has their nuances, their little idiosyncrasies, their trade secrets, their secret sauces. But a system should operate well if 
best practices are employed. Unfortunately, if a customer is experiencing a system that's not working, they'll go out and look at the unit and they'll look at the nameplate and go, oh, that piece of equipment, that manufacturer is substandard or, oh, it's not a good manufacturer. Jason, I'm going to blow your horn right. Jason has this expression and he says, all equipment is created equal and then it's installed. And whenever he says that, I have to chuckle because it is so, so true. You have people out there who still don't evacuate equipment and they're not properly leak checking. And all arrows point back for the most part to the people who are installing and sizing and getting this equipment installed. So I think it has less to do with the brand or the nameplate that's on the equipment and more so with the people who are installing. And a lot of manufacturers realize that, and some of them have their manufacturer-specific training. Yeah. I was just going to ask about that. Is The manufacturer training is at a defensive posture to this situation. And without naming names, but do you think there's a variation in the amount of manufacturer's training provided? And perhaps that's where the association with the nameplate comes. I think they're all starting to get on board with the manufacturer training. You're starting to see more and more of them pop up in the different, especially as these changes are coming out, the SEER 2 and the A2L transition, you're starting to see a lot more manufacturer training. They understand that the contractor, the technician is the front line for their unit with their name on it in the customer's home. And in the end, it's their name on the line. So they want to make sure that the people that are accessing this equipment are doing the right things with it so that they don't get a bad name. I'd like to point out that when you said some equipment is better than others, they're all tested to the same standards. They all have to achieve the same standards in the SEER testing, the UL testing for safety, ISO all of the standards, right? So if a piece of equipment is put on the market, it has met all of the minimum or maximum standards necessary to be on the market. So when we throw that expression out there, all equipment is manufactured the same and then it's installed, they are all tested to those same standards. Bill, let me ask you a question. When you bring your car for service, don't you bring it? Well, not everybody, but it is strongly recommended that you bring your car to the company who manufactured your vehicle. Every car manufacturer had, I mean, yes, you have certain auto mechanics that'll work on every car, no matter. I've always brought my cars back to the manufacturer for their service because who's going to do their service better? Than them, who has access to the most up to date manuals and access to parts as readily as the manufacturer. So, every air conditioning manufacturing company, their job is the same to provide comfort cooling, comfort heating, to provide comfort, but their controls, their troubleshooting techniques, their error codes, they're all different from manufacturer to manufacturer. So, I think it definitely behooves them to conduct manufacturer training. Some manufacturers, even say, you will be an authorized technician through our company, but you need to get recertified every two years or every three years just to make certain that you're up to date. So I think it really is important because you don't want somebody who's not trained on your equipment servicing your equipment. I think we covered a lot here. We could cover more. We should do this again, but I'm going to throw sort of a tongue-in-cheek line out there and just see your reactions individually. This is all going to settle down in 2024, right? I mean, 2023 is just going to be year change. And Wait, you're laughing at me. Why are you laughing at me? <laughs> well, wow. there's some more rulings. The AIM Act that we've thrown out there, which is what started the HFC phase down. 
requires three different rulings. One is out. It established the timeline, the phase down, how, what the percentages are. And there's two more rulings that are due. There's a bunch of petitions in front of the EPA for a bunch of different things. There's a new proposed rule this morning that's being put out there. So until all of the transition is finished over the next, say, decade, we have more rulings coming down out of this AIM Act. And again, the AIM Act was something that wasn't started by the EPA. It actually passed through Congress, passed through the Senate bipartisan, was signed by the president at the time. So this is something that can't be undone by just a wave of a pen. It would have to be repealed through Congress, through the Senate, through the president. It's just not going to happen. So again, this started at the highest levels and rolled its way down to us. Yeah, but Jason, I think it's important also, a lot of people look at the changes that are coming with equipment, with refrigerant, and a lot of people say, oh, well, this is just a cash grab by the equipment manufacturers. They're doing this. The refrigerant manufacturers, oh, they're doing this just so we have to buy new stuff. Buy, we have to buy new testing equipment. We have to change the equipment we're using. And a lot of these changes were brought about by the industry itself. Again, like with the CO2, we mentioned that we wanted the equipment to actually mirror its performance once it's installed. So these are really adjustments and advances that we're making to better the industry. And I, I don't think it's fair to say that it's a cash grab by the refrigerant manufacturers or the equipment refrigeration manufacturers or the organizations in the industry. I just pulled up a reference here from Option on the American Innovation and Manufacturing Act, the AIM Act, and it talks about three major things it's expected to bring, which is new jobs, 33,000 new jobs, almost $39 billion in direct and indirect manufacturing output, and $12.5 billion improving the U.S. trade balance in equipment and chemicals. So it's a reaction by Congress to what's happening in the rest of the world to keep American industry competitive. Right. We're making HFCs and nobody else can use them. So where do we ship them? Right. It's a fallout kind of thing, but it's being done with, I'd say, the bigger picture in mind. And it's all going to impact us. Fire suppressants, foam blowing agents, propellants, solvents, automotive, refrigeration, and HVAC. It's hitting us everywhere in all these different cylinders. Yeah. A lot of people think that it's just HVAC, but there are so many other industries. Yeah. We're a small piece of it. Yeah, we are. Total AIM Act is $369 billion of overall education infrastructure redesign. And when we think about our portion of that and go four, we're a small piece of the initiative. And it's a global initiative. So many of the things are part of international treaties. So many things affected by the EPA come from like the Kigali Amendment to the Montreal Protocol. It's things that we're not going to be backing out easily. So it was initiating a political question. Will things change when politics change? Well, we all know that some things can, absolutely. You sensed how I snuck that in there, huh? <laughs> Will some of these big things change? No, especially things like refrigerant phase downs. Those are here to stay. CR2 is here to stay. CR2 is here to stay. The expansion of cold climate heat pumps is happening. It, you're not going to stop it. We've already seen many jurisdictions, local jurisdictions that are banning new gas connections and requiring cold climate heat pump technology. So those are not federal initiatives. Those are local and state initiatives that are going to direct, like I said, that are directing the changes in the manufacturing. So they're not starting from the top. They're literally starting from the lower levels of the industry and working their way back up the chain. Yeah, there are areas in my neck of the woods where you cannot install new natural gas systems. Many places around the country starting that initiative. Actually, I had a student ask me when I was out of school this week, actually last week, 
oh, well, we have Seer, now we have Seer 2. When are the next changes coming? And that's what I mentioned. Well, Seer, as Clifton mentioned, was introduced in, in 87, and Seer 2 is 2016. So you're looking at 30 years. So by the time we're looking at Seer 3, I think I will be a little grayer. I have hair at all. So it takes time. These things don't happen overnight. But to sum it all up, the resources are there. Clifton, Eugene, Jason, great resources, great approachable people that were either married, born, or abducted into the HVAC industry. <laughs> I'm going to keep using that, Jason. Oh my gosh. I'm thinking that's like a profile highlight. <laughs> so thanks again for coming on this podcast and both the video and audio portions of it. I look forward to seeing you all in person. And I hope some of the listeners here either going to see you at the AHR Expo in Atlanta or see you in Las Vegas at the National HVAC Educator and Trainers Conference in March. I'll put links to all this, some of the things we talked about, especially the conferences and the resources. And if you're okay, can I share your email addresses? Oh yeah, please do. Contact information. Those will be in the show notes. Yeah. All right. Perfect. Well, thanks again for coming on Building HVC Science Podcast again today. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much, Bill, and everything you do. Thanks, Bill. Thank you. I want to thank you for listening to this episode of Myth Busting with Jason Clifton and Eugene from ESCO, the ESCO group. Hope you grabbed a few tidbits of information and encourage you to take a look at the show notes. Got a bunch of links, including the email addresses for our guests. They're just so willing to help and serve. There's also links to the National HVACR Educational Conference and the video channel that ESCO Group has. And you can see some of the really interesting videos that Clifton especially is producing lately. And also link to the AHR Expo, which we spoke about at some length in this podcast. I also host the ResTalk podcast, where you can learn more about the rapidly expanding world of home energy ratings and other peripheral topics. There's other great trade-related resources out there and influencers, including the HVACR School, HVAC Shop Talk, Stephen Rarden, HVAC Reefer Guy, Tool Pros, Service Business Mastery, Quality HVAC, HVAC Overtime, HVACR Videos, HomeDiagnosis.tv, and AC Service Tech, as well as MeasureQuick. The Building HVAC Science Podcast is a production of True Tech Tools Limited. In full disclosure, I'm a co-owner at True Tech. If you'd like to see some of the great products we have at True Tech that'll help you solve some of these problems and perhaps bust some of the myths, you can go to www.truetechtools.com. Thanks for listening to this episode of Building HVAC Science, and we hope to have you back again listening to more little tidbits of information and wealths of knowledge from all the guests I interview. Take care.